And there's a big domino effect. The less resources that we've got, that fundamentally going to put us into a place where we're not going to be able to attend in a timely fashion. That was Simon LaRue, a firefighter from Aberdeen, with a warning everyone should listen to after the destruction left by Storm Babette in recent days. We'll hear more from him later, and we'll speak to a university expert about the wider climate and infrastructure context as we prepare for more extreme weather. That's all coming up today on this latest episode of The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and as well as our two interview guests, I'm joined by my colleagues Derek Healy and Lindsay Hamilton, here to discuss the political dimension to all of this. How are you doing, Derek? You sort of missed the brunt of the weather over the the weekend, did you? Yeah, I was fortunate, actually, where I was seemed to miss pretty much all of it, Um, but did report on it, so saw an awful lot of pictures and videos getting sent in. Yeah. Um, it was very different for you, Lindsay. You were in the thick of it, reporting from the really badly hit areas. What was it? What was it like when at uh, the height of it? Yeah, it was really bad. I actually live in Kerry Muir, and I think mm. the eye of the storm and the red amber warming was right across us, and so you know, several miles around. Getting out of Kerry Muir itself was a, a bit of a challenge. We were mm. marooned at one point. However, um, we were nothing in compared to what the people up in Brechin were having to cope with. Yeah. I eventually managed to get my way through quite a lot of flooding and got to Brechin. And the devastation, as you say there, was horrible. Houses completely flooded, water up to door level, people fleeing at four o'clock in the morning uh, in their Mm pyjamas, trying to save what they could. That turned out to be very little. Um, Several people spoke to me about the tsunami of water that came crashing over the wall and crashing through the wall when the the flood defence wall in Brechin on River Street actually gave way at the height of the water. Mm -hmm. People waded chest deep, one guy carrying his beloved dog above his head in the freezing muddy water. He was eventually, along with others, able to return to his home over the weekend and they were devastated, in shock by the mess in their homes. Also visited um, a caravan site in Brechin where people genuinely believed they were going to die. Mm-hmm. They were standing on their kitchen worktops with the water rising, wrapping round, lapping around their knees, getting ever higher. The Coast Guards were doing a valiant job taking boats in to yeah. try to rescue people, but Obviously, resources were limited with hundreds of people requiring to be evacuated. So all in all, a really upsetting scene in in Brechin and that area at the weekend. The scale of the devastation is it was well documented in, in all the video and on in the photographs that we saw from the scene, but it, it really you won't get this, the, the sheer sort of scale of it or the human dimension speaking to people who are standing, and particularly you mentioned there, like caravans and static homes, and those things are not the sturdiest yeah. um, buildings in the world. And some of the, the mess left behind after the, the floodwaters came was, was absolutely just incredible. Uh, I, here, I was on the, the sort of southern edge of it near Edinburgh, and it was it was wild enough here. Um, but obviously around Angus and Aberdeenshire, it was, it was, it was a lot worse with tragic consequences too. The body of an Arbroath man, Peter Pelling, was identified two days before this recording. He, he'd he been in a, a car swept away near Marykirk during the storm on the 20th of October. He worked as a butcher in Aberdeen. 
Perthshire businesswoman Wendy Taylor also died, as did a painter from Arbroath called John Gillen. Storm Babette was given a, a big warning in advance, but I think it's fair to say this was a big shock to everyone with its intensity. And while we'll discuss what happened and consider the cost and political response, and of course climate change, this is a stark reminder about the need for a well-funded, well-equipped emergency service, as Lindsay was pointing out there with the, the Coast Guard and resources being stretched all over the place. The timing's interesting because yesterday, which was the 24th of October, the Fire Brigades Union were in the Scottish Parliament to publish a new report called Firestorm, which looks at the impact of cuts and patchy services with retained fire stations under pressure as well. As people look to the next storm or summer wildfire uh, as well, will, will we always be able to rely on such a rapid response? DC Thompson politics reporter Justin Bowie caught up with Simon LaRue, a firefighter who works out of Alton's in Aberdeen, to ask what the situation is like for the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service right now. And do you worry, given you know all the discussion in there about you know the lack of training, the fact that you know you're under-resourced, there's not been enough investment. You know, if if you guys are expected to help out more in flood events in future, and those flooding events are more common, do you just worry that you're not going to have the adequate resources or staff to be able to do it? Yes, uh, fundamentally. Uh, cut firefighter numbers, it just reduced the amount of people that's going to be available at any one time. Uh, we have a certain amount of firefighters that will be on duty from a whole time perspective. The removal of those 10 appliances has reduced that. Uh, our on-call uh, duty system as well, our RDS, they're there, as we've uh, already discussed, they're currently sat at uh, almost 30% vacancy rate. Uh, there's hundreds of those appliances not available on a daily basis because They've not got the crews that are available for that. It all boils down to the investment into the service and the then the stripping of uh, those stations to cover the other stations when they're away, who's then covering their area. And there's a big domino effect. The less resources that we've got are fundamentally going to put us into a place where we are not going to be able to attend in a timely fashion. And in addition to that, you know, do you hope that incidents like Storm Babbitt that we've seen at the weekend and those big climate-induced incidents kind of serve as a bit of a wake-up call for the government to realise, you know, you guys need to be funded and if we want a good response to incidents like this, you know, whether it be wildfires in the summer or flooding in winter or, or you know, any sort of big incident, that you know, do you, do you hope that serves as a wake-up call for the government? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, the, the recent storm that we've had over the last few days, the A90 uh, between Dundee and Aberdeen was uh, shut. The national resources, the high vehicles that we've got, some of the specialist uh, skill stations that we've got that are through the service uh, stay that they're national so they can travel anywhere. Well, when the road network is unavailable to be travelled on, that cutting of those services means that we won't actually be able to provide a national uh, resource without having a, a huge uh, diversion to put in place. I mean, it took myself four and a half hours to get down to Edinburgh from Aberdeen on Sunday where it's normally two and a half hours. So uh, if that was uh, a national incident that was requiring those resources, the impact on the environment with uh, just the, the pollutants from, from the vehicles that are going, the impact potentially on the, the public that are using the road network because we're traveling on blue lights, uh, it, it's, it, it has, it's all relative and it has a knock-on effect to everything that we do. And these climate-based emergencies that we go into are becoming more and more uh, frequent and prevalent. And with the less people that we've got to deal with them, it means we're going to be take, going from job to job. Thursday, for example, I was in Aberdeen, I was on duty, and we didn't stop all day. We were going to make safes because roofs were being blown off by the high winds, uh, flooding uh, 
from from the rainfall that will come not only through uh, flooding on the uh, from ground level upwards because the, the storm drains and everything can't cope with the with the uh, level of water that they were receiving, but also uh, flooding through from the roofs as well. So we are then having to go in and make these premises safe. Signs on the front of shops were blowing off, so we were for probably three or four days. The fire service across the whole of Scotland was, especially in the in the northeast, were really really uh, sort of full to capacity. And any major event firewise that came in, uh, it would have been really struggling because you have to then prioritise which which one do we do we do? Uh, do we then not send our predetermined attendance to that one because we've got something else that's going on? We've not got the resources available at that point, but we need to send something that then has a massive uh, pressure upon the incident commanders that are there, whether that be through uh, the moral pressure turning up to a potential house fire with somebody screaming that they've got to get in, but you've not got the uh, the amount of staff that you need to be able to provide that service at that moment in time, waiting for backup. So, yeah, the, moving forwards, it needs to be a wake-up call. The, the report that has, the fire storm report has been released it needs to go through, look at the considerations that are put in place there. Everything falls down to funding, significant funding to put back into the Scottish Fire Rescue Service. Derek, there were more than a few alarm bells ringing there about the impact of stretched budgets on the fire service, which doesn't just obviously turn up to fires. Or do you think we're in a bit of trouble here? Yeah, it's interesting um, because I mean, the timing of this, the Fire Brigade Union has just put a report out talking about some of the difficulties they're facing um, and attending these kind of emergency events. I think if you look at some of the figures they're talking about, so over the past 10 years, there's been 1,200 jobs cut. And they're saying there's 780 more expected to go in the near future. And the reality of that is that communities are going to be left with reduced emergency cover. That's exactly what Simon was talking about there. Um, I mean, uh, the government has invested 42 million, uh, or so they say there's 42 million available for councils to invest in flood risk plans. So they're saying money is there, but clearly it's not enough. Clearly it's not having the kind of effect it needs to have. Um, I know Lindsay was, was speaking to Hamza when he was visiting Brecon as well, and he has indicated that help is coming. But you know, I think that that's kind of reactionary money, reactionary help that's going to be there. Clearly, there needs to be some thought, some forethought about what kind of services do we want to have available. And at the moment, it seems like we're not moving in a direction where there's going to be adequate services in these kind of towns where we've had these kind of problems. Yeah, and he mentioned, of course, the the A90, which runs between Aberdeen and Dundee, being effectively cut off by by flooding. So if your appliances are on one side, you're not going to get to the other. So there's a very clear reminder about the amount of equipment of equipment that we need in in all the different parts of the country. Uh, Derek, you mentioned um, how the First Minister Hamza Yousaf was in Brecon there as well. Lindsay, you you were in Brecon when he when he arrived there. What was his reaction like? He was clearly shocked. He met people who have been made homeless at the moment from River Street. He was allowed into their homes. He saw for himself the mess. He was very sympathetic towards these people. He completely understands their situation. Um, it was put to him that the estimated repair damage for that corner of Angus alone is going to be something like £500 million. The First Minister reaffirmed that there's £150 million in the flood protection kitty. He again reaffirmed that each local authority will be given a further £42 million to help with flood protection. But he couldn't really say where any money was coming from currently. 
for mm -hmm. the repairs. He is going to speak, he's been speaking to the British Association of Insurers because the majority of people who were impacted don't have insurance. They can't get insurance because they live in a flood risk area. He was asked if he would look at the situation where council tax in Angus has been frozen. He said that would be a fully funded council tax freeze. Hmm. He also indicated that if need be, he would approach the Westminster government if funding wasn't available from, from anywhere else and just tried to assure people that he is going to be and the Scottish government will be at the forefront of the recovery situation in Angus. You mentioned there the, the, the council tax freeze, which is something that happened um, just a week before the storm, or not even just days before the storm. It was announced at the SNP yeah. conference that the council tax would be frozen. It was a big surprise, that one. We've, we've, we've talked about that um, elsewhere, and we've covered it in full on our uh, web pages um, for the Courier and the P&J. But the, that, that phrase, fully funded, is interesting because, of course, their definition of fully funding might be different to Angus Council's definition of fully funded. Um, and that is going to be a huge political row um, now that the Scottish Parliament's back from October recess, or the tatty howking holidays, as we should call them. Um, Derek, you, you, you have also been looking at the insurance angle of this as well, because like Lindsay was saying, um, there's a big problem there because a lot of these properties aren't insured. A lot of them are, will be you know, static homes, caravans as well. There's, there's a lot of problems with insurance. This is going to be an expensive clear-up operation, not just on the ground, but for people's finances. Yeah, I mean, there's a suggestion that there's been a lot of calls coming in over that weekend that people had been getting in touch with insurers and they'd been expecting like, a deluge of people contacting them and looking to see what their options were. There's also a suggestion this could be the one of the costliest weather events um, in Scottish history. If you look back at the storm Arwen a few years ago, the cost of that came in at about three hundred million pounds, but that was mostly wind-related damage. Whereas this is flooding damage, so it's coming from water, and generally water damage tends to be more expensive to repair. Mm. So the suggestion is that this could come in anywhere up to about five hundred million pounds, which is obviously an absolutely huge amount of money. But I mean. The other side of this is that in terms of you know, looking at cost and looking at money, we're talking a little bit about some of the kind of preventative measures that can happen. And the reality is, so if you look at the flood defences, for example, in Brecon, they were put in in 2016, which in the grand scheme of things is not that long ago. And they were put in mm -hmm. to withstand um, kind of floods of up to 3.8 metres. Well, at 4am on Friday, um, the, the fire brigade says it was above 5 metres, above normal levels. That's where waters were at. So that's, that's, that's huge. So yeah, in the space of just a few years, it's already well above where people were thinking the issues were going to be at. So it's alarming. It probably speaks to the fact that we do need to look very seriously at how we are prepared for, for the climate crisis and the long-term impacts on communities. You mentioned the the, the, the sheer size of the, the flow of water there as well. That was you know, anyone who was looking at the the water levels going up, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency have got um, river gauges mm. all over the country. It's set, um, you know, all over every river at multiple points, and you can watch the the, the river levels going up. And um, and Angus, these areas, the the Esk kind of river basin, they they all broke. They just got completely overwhelmed. And there's like, you know, there's a point when you look at the chart that just stops, um, and that's of course where it got really bad. Well, we, I mean. So we've looked at the immediate storm damage with this, but the impact of climate change, which everyone's touched on, is clearly having a, a bigger impact than, than many might want to admit. 
Um, so is Scotland ready for more rain, more heat, wildfires, potentially more fatal destruction? Before we join for today's chat, Justin Bowie spoke with Dundee University expert Dr. Sarah Halliday. She noted that the, the storm was perhaps unprecedented, but um, also that we're going to have to get used to a lot more. It was a combination of events which led to the severity of the storm uh, that we saw. So we had a jet stream which normally sits over us, but it was in a very unusual position because of a typhoon that had hit Japan last week. <laughs> um, so because of that, uh, it was in a very unusual position. We then had a storm that tracked up from the south, from the Bay of Biscay. And because of the incredibly warm ocean temperatures, sea temperatures that we've had, and the warm atmosphere that we had at the time, that storm was able to pick up and hold a huge amount of water, which meant that by the time it reached uh, the kind of east coast of Scotland, where it started to slow down because we had a high pressure zone uh, over Scandinavia. So that kind of held the storm uh, on that east coast. And it just meant that it had a huge amount of water within it, which it could then uh, release as rainfall, uh, which is what we saw. And of course, the event was coming very quickly on the back of the event that we had on the 6th and the 7th of October, where we'd already had incredibly high rainfall and flooding in some areas. So many of the catchments that were then experiencing this very heavy rainfall were already um, what we'd call saturated. So the ground was kind of already full of water. Uh, the rivers were already flowing pretty high uh, before this storm hit. Um, and the intensity of rainfalls uh, that we were seeing, just to put it into context, um, you know, we were getting the equivalent of three to four months worth of rainfall uh, over the space of one to two days in some areas. A lot of focus over the past couple of days has sort of come onto things like flood defences in areas like Brecon, which were breached. So are the current defences and mechanisms we have in place to mitigate storms like these sufficient? Or is it just the case that when an event this extreme hits, we're almost somewhat limited in what we can do? I think it's a, a combination of the two. Um, I will caveat this by saying I'm not a flood defence expert. Um, but I think that the challenge uh, that we face um, are that because of climate change, uh, these extreme events are becoming more intense. So where we may have defences that have been adequate historically, uh, they are now facing increasing pressure and challenges as these events become more severe. Uh, we also have the issue of kind of increasing urbanisation uh, within some of our catchments and what we call uh, kind of urban creep uh, within our catchments. Um, so we have much more area nowadays which is um, concrete. Uh, we have uh, many people in their gardens uh, paving and putting in uh, land surfaces which cause barriers to rainfall saturating so we've got a kind of combined effect of the changes that are taking place within our catchment and then this incredibly uh, unprecedented rainfall but I think with an event this extreme uh, we are limited uh, to a certain extent in, in what we can do. What do you think going forward that say governments and individuals I suppose particularly governments and terms of policy perhaps need to be doing to try and tackle this i mean climate change is not going away as you allude to you know these events are perhaps only going to become more common what can governments do is it a case of just spending more money and better defenses is it a case of you know 
kind of investing in, a, in an infrastructure so it's more suited to events like these? Or is there just kind of no magic silver bullet here? I think there is no magic silver bullet, but there are lots of things that we can do. And I think taking a, a much more integrated approach and thinking about how we deal with water uh, in a sustainable and kind of holistic way um, is really important. Um, as you say, we're likely to face um, much many more of these types of very intense uh, winter storms. Uh, so we must think about how we can um, construct our catchments uh, to be able to cope with these events better. Um, so a mix of kind of what we would refer to as, as blue-green infrastructure along with the kind of grey infrastructure. So the hard defences, yes, are absolutely needed in places, um, but we can also look at what we can do in terms of uh, blue and green infrastructure. So um, attenuation ponds, for example, further up the catchment, just ways to look to try to hold back and store the water uh, for longer within the catchments so that we don't get that incredible uh, rush of water that we see uh, where it just travels through very, very quickly. Um, from an individual perspective, it's also been a you know, incredibly terrifying for the communities involved and absolutely harrowing uh, for those who have been directly impacted uh, by the flooding events. Um, and from an individual perspective, uh, having a kind of flood preparedness plan in place um, won't necessarily prevent your property from being flooded, uh, but will hopefully give you a strategy for how to cope uh, with the events, you know, so knowing um, kind of having a flood kind of action pack ready with batteries and torches and waterproof clothes kind of ready to go in the event of a flood um, having a kind of plan in place for how you will move precious items within your home and, and try to store them so that they can be protected knowing how you turn off your, your gas uh, for example and having that kind of all in place uh, before the event um, can, can at least give you some sense of control um, in during which is during what is obviously a very terrifying situation. Do you think you know governments and politicians give enough attention to large scale events like these? You know, it, it almost seems like we get caught napping when these events strike. We seem to be very surprised and uncertain about what to do next. But do you think you know when you mention those say infrastructure changes that need to happen, is there enough attention being given to this in the in the sort of field at the moment, or you know do you think a lot more needs to be done? I think in terms of, you know, I wouldn't say that we were caught off guard by this event in the sense I think there was um, a lot of modelling work and, and scientific research that had gone in to demonstrate that this event was coming and, and to protect the scale of the event um, that would unfold. And I think um, a lot of the government agencies, the local authority teams, um, SEPA, uh, worked incredibly hard to try to, you know, to get that communication out um, to let people know how life-threatening the, the event was going to be. Um, you know, red alerts are not kind of issued um, on a whim. Um, so I think, you know, there, there was a lot of work done there. Obviously, that work won't prevent an event uh, from taking place. And um, there's very little that can be done to prevent a, a weather event um of this scale um but in terms of that longer term planning so you know really ensuring that when we're talking about 
climate change. Um, we aren't just planning for the extremes that we've seen in the past, and um, that we are planning for what uh, future extremes um, may look like, um, that we are taking that kind of integrated approach to planning and thinking about where we are building uh, and how we are doing that. Um, I think they're all positive actions uh, that we can take both uh, at the government level and at the community level. We had a story in, on Sunday in all of our DC Thompson titles about you know the costs of this event and it was estimated this could be one of the costliest events in Scotland's history in terms of you know weather events. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on you know what are the long-term costs of events like this? I mean, we've got people who could be homeless until Christmas or you know out of their homes until Christmas. There'll be massive damage to infrastructure. Of course, you know, it affects transport as well. So what are the long-term costs of events like these? And is that really worrying in the long term as well in terms of how that can you know damage the economy? What I could probably comment on is that the cost beyond just the flooding and so you obviously have the immediate cost of the flooding and the infrastructure damage and as you've said people could be out of their homes um, to Christmas and beyond uh, because it takes time uh, to make those to check that those homes are secure to dry those homes out to make them safe again uh, for people to re-enter uh, we also have the wider kind of as you've noted infrastructural damage uh, to our rail networks our road networks and again all of that requires time to check the that the infrastructure is still safe and suitable to use and that's been happening uh, on the a90 and um, we also have the wider kind of um impacts that maybe haven't been noted as much yet but will be in the coming weeks uh, and months so the agricultural impacts um, so the loss of crops um, stored um, you know potato stores impacted uh, fields waterlogged uh, so whole crops uh, whole crops will be lost and depending how quickly fields can drain and, and be replanted uh, issues there we also have a huge amount of soil loss which has taken place uh, which will have uh, significant impacts uh, again on the agricultural community um, and we've got a significant number of trees down uh, again as well and that all has a cost associated with dealing with those trees but also the kind of uh, carbon cost of, of losing that, that vegetation um, and that soil uh, has a kind of climate impact in, in its own right. Um, I think ensuring that we have uh, resources in place to support those communities that are really uh, impacted by these events is critical um, and it is something that will, will be need to be planned for in the future to think about how do we resource and fund recovery uh, after these types of events. That was Dr Sarah Halliday, a water quality expert at Dundee University, speaking with Justin Bowie earlier. And that's it for the Stushi this week. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, thanks to our guests, Simon LaRue and Sarah Halliday, as well as Derek Healy, Justin Bowie, Lindsay Hamilton, producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, Sunday Post and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.